This is From Paint to Purpose, a podcast by FCP Services, where we believe people drive growth. Exploring topics related to company culture, leadership, and construction industry insights. Now your host. All right, we are here today with Cheryl Batchelder, um, known very well for being the CEO of Popeyes, as well as an amazing book called Dare to Serve. Um, is there anything that you would like to expand on in that short introduction, Cheryl, that makes, I guess, you unique? Um, who, who is Cheryl? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you for the introduction. I'm honored to be here with you today. Um, I guess what I want to make me unique is my point of view on leadership and how it creates results in the marketplace. I love to talk about intentional leadership, um, and I love to help people think about how they live intentional lives. So uh, I'm excited about our conversation. Oh, I'm pumped as well. I have led my team through your book. I've like bragged to everybody about your book. So um, it's definitely a style uh, that, that is set out and different but you know, draw similarities and I'm guessing your pursuit to continuously learn about leadership. So I guess on that note, as leaders in an organization are approaching becoming, I guess, this dare to serve leadership model, um, how do they transform that from the inside out? You know, moving from being served uh, to serving others within their organization. Well, first, I just compliment you on getting the definition right, because uh, I think a lot of people struggle with what servant leadership is. And it very simply is to think of others more often than yourself. Uh, that's the definition that I find the most helpful. And so to your point, what that means for a leader who wants to be a dare to serve leader, it means they have to start with themselves. It's very much an inside out process. It's very much a daily aspiration. It's not like something you can say, oh, ta-da, I'm a servant leader now. Uh, Cause you have to constantly reflect and review your own decision-making and own thinking to align with those principles. And so the reason I wrote a book was not because um, there weren't other books written about servant leadership, there are plenty but very few focus on how you get yourself there as a leader. So um, in Dare to Serve, there are 40 reflection questions for the leader. That's what I mean by inside out. I mean, look at these principles and decide uh, and consciously and intentionally choose whether they're going to be yours yeah. and whether people are going to see them in your actions, not just in your blog posts. Um, <laughs> I love that. You know, it, it, it does speak volumes when it actually comes out in an actionable way. Um, but it's true, and I would, I would think that you would agree that this, this type of leadership doesn't happen overnight. Um, so with that being said, what advice, or I guess, how, how do organizations build confidence in this servant mindset, you know, especially when it takes a lot of time to see the fruits of the effort? Well, I think... We must make the case daily. This is not the leadership approach of culture. This is not the norm. This is not well understood. Um, and so I think we have to daily make the case. We have to know 
um, what the tenets of servant leadership are. We have to know how they drive an environment that produces great results. And we have to be able to articulate that. One of my favorite conversations while leading a public company was a stock analyst on Wall Street asking me, why on earth should I care about servant leadership? And I was grateful for the question in a public forum. Um, and I answered it simply. I said, you should care about servant leadership because it creates the conditions for superior performance results. And that's what we want to deliver for you, the shareholder. That's amazing. Uh, and you have to be prepared, you know, like that daily to answer the questions you will be asked because a lot of people think servant leadership is kumbaya on campfires and gukhags. <laughs> you know, they think it's soft. They think it's weak. Um, and we have to make a stronger case uh, that really includes the reason why we pursue it. It's for the people and it's also for the enterprise to prosper. Yeah, I'm curious about something that you just hit on there uh, with servant leadership being soft and a kumbaya. You know, one of the aspects that intrigued me the most um, was the aspect of loving those that you lead uh, when you spoke about that in your book. You know, and, and love can, can be, you know, this uh, soft kind of word. You know, it's gentle, it's empathetic, but... You know, there is a tough aspect to that as well. So where, where's the balance in loving those you lead, whether it be accountability or, you know, setting standards that are necessary to be successful um, in industries right. and organizations as well? Right. I love this question. <laughs> uh, first, first of all, um, I'm talking about love as an action verb. Yeah. Uh, that's a quote from a guy named Joel Manby. I really think we're talking about how you enact love in the workplace. What does that look like? Um, and so I'll use an analogy because I'm a parent, right? Um, when you love a teenager, it's not always a happy la-la place, right? Uh, loving a teenager means setting clear expectations, having boundaries, consequences for their decisions, right? Uh, even if we're not parents, we know what that kind of looks like. And we know that it's very important to be a parent to a teenager, right? Um, so that they grow through that phase without making huge lasting life errors that could hurt them. So in business, similarly, we must set clear expectations. We must have high standards um, because that too is part of what creates a place where people thrive and perform their best. Um, I've never seen anybody really perform their best work if they don't know what they're trying to do, right? Yes. If expectations <laughs> are clear. And, you know, so as a boss, if somebody is working for you and not performing, the first question you ask yourself is, what did I do to set them up for success, right? Because I'm responsible for setting expectations. I'm responsible for giving people honest and clear and specific feedback. I'm responsible for performance reviews, right? These are the things leaders do. And so I think accountability, performance, um, you know, creating a place, uh, if you're trying to create an enterprise that's thriving, everybody has to do their part, right? So yeah. you have to, as a leader, address those who aren't doing their part, uh, right up to, an inclu to including 
firing people who can't do their part, either skill constrained or attitude constrained. For the sake of the people and the enterprise, you have to move uh, on that decision eventually. So it, that, it's very much an accountability <laughs> leadership style. has to be. It does. And I would 110% agree with that. That's why I love this model so much. Um, and I think at the base of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is you know setting those expectations as well. Um, more on the outward focus side of things. And, and in that piece, it's identifying the culture and the core values around that culture. So what is so important about an organization getting their core values right? Well, I think there's two parts to that. Um, one is the individual leader has to have their core values straight in their mind. And I would tell you, based on experience, not facts, that 90% of people haven't given it much thought. <laughs> um, you know, what are my three or four core values that I want to stand for in the workplace? I mean, how many people have those written down on a note card uh, or in their laptop? Not very many. And if you don't know why you go to work and how you plan to show up from a values or beliefs standpoint, um, it's going to be interesting to try to connect to the people in the enterprise and contribute. Um, so first, inward. To your point about teamwork, uh, equally important, we each have our individual values and beliefs, but we also have to forge a collaborative place of shared values. Um, and we have to decide, and it can't be 12, but three or four things that we can agree are going to govern ourselves as a team. Um, and until you do that, you're not prepared to be a high-performing team because the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to hit a values conflict that's going to interfere with the effectiveness of the team. Like, you value honesty, I don't. <laughs> that's going to be a problem, you know. Yeah, you are uncomfortable with conflict. Conflict is required in teamwork. Um, so, if we don't hash these things out, I mean, right, it's just like in a marriage or any relationship, right? If we don't hash out our value and belief conflicts and find a place, not all places, but find a few that we really can share, it will be difficult for us to forge an effective team. Um, so I, you know, a lot of people, again, poo-poo values clarification exercises, right? They say, I've done them all. I'm sick of the games. But if we don't do that work, we have nothing to rely on um, to govern ourselves as we get into the hot and heavy work that we have to do together. I'd rather do that work ahead of time than in the midst of the work. Definitely. And, you know, you, you had mentioned, you know, a lot of people poo-poo on that, this concept and this idea. Um, and, you know, that can be the normal approach for somebody that this is new to. Or maybe they've gone through something similar and maybe it wasn't done well, you know. Or maybe it, it wasn't done well because whoever was leading it wasn't, you know, actually acting it out themselves. And so as organizations start to implement these pieces... I guess, is there a cornerstone or a foundational piece that can I, help, help change or shift that mindset in, in the organization um, and of their teams to see it not as a bad, but as a good and then a value add-on, I guess? Well, you bring up an important point, uh, which I would call patience. 
Um, <laughs> if you're going to lead in a different fashion than culture, which servant leadership is, uh, don't expect people to all show up with an understanding of why it works and why it's valuable. Um, they have been trained up in other places and you raise some really important ones. They've worked for some difficult people. They've been treated badly in the workplace, perhaps. Uh, they have heard words, they have seen words on plaques at companies <laughs> that aren't lived out. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why people come to you, the leader, with skepticism about this, right? Because their experience defeats <laughs> your principles, right? And so I really emphasize the need to be patient and kind, if you will, while people observe and learn and decide if you're serious. One of my executives, when I pressed him on this, you know, he wasn't exactly adopting a theme song. And I pressed him on it and he goes, look, I have never worked anywhere safe. So maybe this is a safe place for me to bring my whole self to work, but I'm going to be cautious. And I said, you know what? I get it. Yeah. I get it. And I'm going to be more patient with you because that is a fair point. If you've had, you know, if you've been in a career 15, 20 years and have not experienced good leadership, which by the way is entirely possible, then I need to be patient with you while you see the positive impacts of leadership, of servant leadership in action. And when you come to trust the leaders and the idea for yourself. Um, but yeah, it's different. Uh, <laughs> most people have not been trained up in it. Oh, definitely. And different can be good, but different is different at the end of the day. And it takes that time to, to build that trust and confidence that what we're saying we're actually going to be doing. So no, I appreciate that. And I guess on that note, you know, there's there's probably quite a few organizations that try to go down this path, you know, and they have the best in, of intentions. There's excitement generated around it. So why do you believe that, you know, there's organizations that, that start this process and then they stop it? You know, it, it kind of burns out. What What do you believe is the cause of that? Multi-layered. Um, <laughs> But, you know, my experience is largely in large public companies. And one of the reasons it rarely takes hold in large public companies is leadership turnover. Um, the average CEO, I think, is two and a half years in a public company. Um, and these principles take time to embed uh, and demonstrate and teach. Uh, you're building, you know, a culture of servant leadership, which means you're bringing thousands of people with you. Um, and most leaders either don't get the time or take the time to make that happen because of the pressure for short-term results. So you more typically see this lived out in privately held companies, particularly owner companies, right? Either family-owned or entrepreneur-owned because they have control of the ownership and therefore they have time to execute it. So at Popeye's, one of the blessings uh, of our case study is we had nine years. Um, now we had to earn it every quarter by performing. That's how you do it in a public company. You have to have wins on the, you know, small wins on the way to the long term. 
so that you get the opportunity to be in place, right? Because public companies don't suffer poor performance very long. And I'm not sure they should. Um, but I think that's the first thing, is tenure of the leader and perseverance to see it through. I mean, even in family-owned companies, you know, often you see the culture fall apart from generation to generation. So uh, that would be my second point. This is hard. <laughs> this is hard, long-term stuff. Um, and it takes tenacity, perseverance, dedication to see it through day after day, year after year. I couldn't agree more. So I guess in your time and in your experience, were there moments that stick out to you um, where maybe your leaders were wavering a bit on this concept? And if so, what did you do to pull them back in? There's no doubt individuals and teams waver and lose confidence. And it happens whenever you're challenged by a difficult circumstance, right? So when we launched our turnaround plan at Popeye's, it was the fall of 2008. And if you're too young to remember that, it was the financial collapse of all the financial institutions in the United States. I mean, it was a very, it wasn't just a recession. It was like bad. And that was our big investment time and nothing we did that fall worked. Nothing. Um, it was all crap, pardon my French. Um, and so we had to come back to our principles. That's all you can do, right? Is, is you say, okay, what were we trying to do? What's our thesis here? And let's go back to those principles. So for example, one of our number one principles was we are in service to our franchise owners. And so we looked at those 90 days and said, okay, what we just did did not serve them well. And so we got in the room again with those uh, people elected to be franchise representatives. And we said, okay, give us feedback. Now that's humbling and not humble in a happy place, right? That's humbling in a, oh my goodness, we tried really hard, but that did not work well for them. And now we have to say we're sorry. And we have to say we didn't do it well or right or to the best of our abilities. We have to regroup. Um, and so I think um, humility is an essential part, willing to admit you didn't get it right, um, willing to say, ah, I'm sorry, that didn't work for you and I want to get it right for you. These are the tenets that we have to go back to when we don't hit um, the effectiveness for our constituents that we set out to firm. So, and you go back to your values, right? We respected our franchisees. We were planners. We used facts to make data-driven uh, decisions. We um, took personal responsibility for our actions and we strive to be humble leaders. So we had to go back to those core values and say, how would people like that operate now? Would they be fearful and flee? Would they quit? Would they jump off a building? Yeah, you know, what would they do? No, they would stay in the game. They would listen again. They would correct um, and govern themselves, right? By these values that we say we believe. You know, it's not hard to pick values. It's hard to live them out in a crisis. It's hard to live them out when things get tough. Um, and our instinct, all humans' instinct, is to flee when things get hard. It's not to go towards the difficult. <laughs> yes. uh, Don't want to touch the fire, but no. sometimes it's necessary. So I guess in your time and through your experience, is there really a moment 
that sticks out to you where you were convinced that leading through serving um, and this dare to serve model was the right leadership style? So my story is, I, I think I was always a student of leadership, you know, like wanting to understand how does this work? What are the best qualities of leaders? And then marry that with, I experienced some not so great leaders. We all do. Um, and people ask me, you know, who mentored you in servant leadership? And I'm like, ah, my little black book where I wrote down all the things I never want to do when I become a leader, you know, and that there was a lot of truth to that. Um, that a lot of our learning in the early stage of our careers is what not to do. I'll just give a specific example. Um, I had a leader hold me up in front of a lot of people and condescendingly kind of review my performance publicly. It was really ugly. And I wrote down that night in my book, don't publicly humiliate your leaders. Um, that's not a strategy for bringing them back tomorrow effective in their work and role. That, that's not a good path. And so I became convicted about servant leadership because I saw it written about in books by academics and consultants and thought leaders, and I did not see it lived out in the marketplace. And I wanted to figure out that incongruency. Why do we have books that say, it delivers superior performance, you know, good to great, or Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. I mean, these are serious research scientists who have proven servant leadership drives superior outcomes. But the books are bestsellers sitting on everyone's shelves, and they're not being lived out in the workplace. So that's the space I went to. I said, I want to figure that out. I want to figure out why it's not lived out. I want to uh, eventually what I came to is I just want to create one case study for the world to consider, right? Just That's the only reason I wrote a book was let's just document in practical ways how this uh, is a true premise that servant leadership creates the conditions for superior performance. Um, that's where my conviction came from. I grew up, I'm a boomer, so I grew up among, you know, lots of leaders with pictures on the front of magazines and newspapers, but not necessarily for good things, right? Usually character flameouts, right? And I eventually said, you know, I don't want that reputation. I don't want to lead like that. That's not a legacy I aspire to. And each of you has to make that same decision. What is, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? I'm, I, that's not a morbid thought. That's an honest question, you know? What do you want your life to stand for? What do you want your leadership to stand for? These are, these are questions worth asking. Yeah, and that actually hits on a good point. You brought up being a boomer, you know? And so we are, we are moving into a generation that is seeking meaning, you know, and seeking purpose within their work. And so there's still going to be that generational gap that exists. Is there any piece of knowledge or nuggets that you have learned as you've been a student of leadership, even through times of COVID and, and seeing this transition happen, that, that you would give to organizational leaders who are bringing a younger workforce into their environment? Mm -hmm. Well, I think like all generational questions, it's a two-way question. Um, and it requires each generation to say, what is there about this generation that I can learn from? Because uh, we want to be continuous learners. I always say, if you stop learning, you should stop leading. I mean, it's just a bad outcome. So 
let's be learners about this generational question. I am incredibly optimistic about the leadership potential of millennials. Because of this point you just made, they seek to make a difference. They seek to have meaning. They want to do something worthwhile. That is a character trait that is a powerful part of successful leaders. I endorse it. I love it. I embrace it. I want to give all millennials a group hug. I really do. I, I think this is exciting. One researcher said this could be the best leadership generation we've ever seen. I believe that's possible. So here's the thing. I think a millennial has to say, will I be an astute learner of the boomers and the generation that uh, comes before me? I believe it's X. Um, Gen X, pretty skeptical, sometimes look kind of negative, but they've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. There's some wisdom in there. You know, pour through the skepticism. <laughs> they had some things happen in their generation that weren't so cool and shaped that skepticism. Find out. You might as well learn about those earlier in life rather than later in life because uh, I'm an eternal optimist like most millennials are. So I love optimism. But there's wisdom and skepticism, right? It comes from experience in life. So I think if boomers and Gen X uh, works to respect and value this trait in the next generation, and the next generation works to value and learn from our experience, that's where the intersection happens that's going to be good for leadership and good for enterprise. Uh, the best of that combination would be experience and this optimistic make a difference point of view. I love it. That is awesome. So, you know, you brought up another point and you've, you've put it in your book as well about being a continuous learner, you know, especially when it comes down to different leadership models, your little black book, everything that you've had out there. So in your time since you've written this book and, and been the CEO of Popeyes, is there knowledge or a piece of information that you would have loved to have told yourself um, at that time that you know now that maybe would have helped accelerate your leadership or just made a bigger impact as, as you were in that um, position? Well, there's two uh, questions that I wish I had been taught early on. One of them is in, uh, was written by a guy named Robert Greenleaf, who's con considered kind of the father of servant leadership in the marketplace. He wrote lots of essays on it, but he wasn't a pundit. He was just a worker. So I kind of like his worldview. And his question, he calls it the best test. And I summarize it this way. It's actually a little longer, but it basically says, are the people entrusted to my care better off because of my leadership? I really like that question. I, I think you could ask that question every day and learn something from it. Are the people better off because of my leadership? It, it just forces this lens of, am I even thinking about these people, <laughs> right? Did it even occur to me there are people out there, right? Uh, so I love that question. And then I also love uh, to the point we talked about a few minutes ago, I also think we ought to have questions that challenge others to consider servant leadership. And one of the ones I like to kind of posit is um, what, what are the conditions under which people thrive and perform their best work? 
because I've yet to meet anyone who can't articulate what a good boss does, right? It, and this might be the simplest thing you can ask yourself is, I am, am I being a good boss? Because all of us can pretty much write down on the flip chart in a very short order what a bad boss does. They don't take risks on us. They don't spend any time with us. They don't appear to give a hang about us, right? We can just go like that. And the flip side, so what's a good boss do? They care about me. They learn about me. They offer me opportunities to take risk. I learn and grow under their direction and coaching, right? We know. So the only question is, are we going to be the good boss? Um, those are things I wish I had on my notepad sooner. You know, I, I, I love my talent generalist because what he asks me and challenges me every day is how do we humanize those that we're leading, you know? from whether it, it be a, a painter out in the field or the CEO of our company um, and, the, and that humanizing aspect. And I guess there's a twofold part to that as well. And it hits on that love piece of the act of giving love in the workplace can be a little bit awkward and it can be a different um, mindset for many. But in the same way, the act of receiving love in the workplace can be, be hard as well. So I guess long question short, how do you generate that in individuals? How do you generate that openness? So I was reading recently like the seven desires of a human heart, and I won't get them all right, but the few that are relevant here are, you know, every human being wants to be known, understood, valued, affirmed, encouraged. Um, I haven't met one yet that doesn't want to be those things, right? And so I think in the workplace, what that looks like is we actually have to know people to lead them. And knowing people is an investment in a relationship. It takes time. And I think this really does go to a, an important point for the next generation to think about. We're becoming a culture that does not value relationships. We value, you know, we call this a relationship. Um, and that's not a humanity point of view. So if we're going to be a generation of leaders that values humanity, we're gonna have to spend time getting to know these leaders. Um, my tagline for it is I must know you to grow you, right? I really can't put you in the right job or give you the right direction. I can't create a safe place for you if I don't know what makes it unsafe, right? Because you come from a different experience than I come from. Maybe you didn't come from a secure, safe home. I did. But if I don't know you, I don't know how to help, right? I can't do it for you, but I can help create a place where these Fears aren't dominant in your thinking day to day, but I have to know you. I have to know something about you. And we've kind of decided that the personal life stays at home and there's a work person. Do you know any of those people that are just work people? Or, you know, I once had a boss who said, I don't want to know anything about you outside of work. And three months later, I said, I don't want to work for you. And I left. <laughs> right? Because at that point, I was a mother to a, um, a six-year-old and a newborn. And it was impossible to separate out, <laughs> you know, my 
complicated home responsibilities from work. I'm a whole person. We all are whole people. And so I must know you. I must care about the whole person. Um, and we must be willing to invest time in this. I spend a third of my time uh, when I was a CEO. I spent a third of my time in one-on-one -on -one conversations with my leaders. Um, and I challenge you to do that. That's a big number because you've got projects to do and travel to do and meetings to go to ad nauseum. So um, that one-on-one -on -one time is the powerful differentiator in your leadership that you have to work hard uh, to hold that time and to invest it in your people. I love it. I guess my one of my last questions I have for you, and I'm, I'm just going to hit on it again, is waking up with that right attitude, you know, the attitude. The attitude that sets your altitude. Is there a practice? Is there something you ask yourself? Is there a routine that gets you set off on the right foot every single day that you would advise maybe others to, to do to be able to start their day off the right way, you know, before they walk into that, that office um, and start engaging with those that they may be leading? Um. It, I think it's Ken Blanchard who says servant leadership always starts with self-leadership. So this is a very important uh, question to ask yourself is what do you do to get in the right frame of mind for leadership? And, and do you spend time in self-care and preparation so that uh, you don't you know, come into the workplace in a state of chaos or depression or uh, exhaustion? You know, there's all kinds of things. Um, people are watching. You cast a long shadow. I, we actually had a leader once in one company where the team uh, called out the weather report on that leader daily. Cloudy, chance of storms. I, I'm not making this stuff up. People watch us walk in. And if we are cloudy, chance of storms, they're going to rein it in, maybe hide under the desk, maybe not want to talk to you for a few days, right? So know that, um, know that that's how people respond to your leadership. So how do, how do we get ready for the day? Um, everyone has to find their own practices. You know, I had a friend who got up at four in the morning and spent three hours preparing the day. That's not me. I can't get up every day at four in the morning, but I can establish a routine around some quiet time, some reflection time. It can be morning, noon, or night. Um, for me, it's a faith-based exercise. Um, that may not be true for you, but it can be an attitude framing exercise. You know, who's important in this day? Is it me or is it them? How will I govern the decisions I make? Will it be about me or will it be about them? Uh, what decision am I going to wrestle with today with my team where we'll be inclined to protect self-interest, right? Because there's one of those every day. Um, and how will we stave it off? You know, what will anchor us in right thinking? Uh, this is hard stuff. You know, uh, somebody asked me, why don't more companies lead this way? And the simple answer is, it's just too hard. It's just too hard. But self-preparation is the first step. Awesome. Yeah, it's kind of that concept and mentality that's out there right now as well, where it's, it's be 1% better every day, you know. Pick those, pick yes. those nuggets, focus on being 1% every day, 1% better every day. Um, so, no, I appreciate it. I've got one last question for you, and hopefully it's a simple one, but 
I'm just wondering if there's a question that I didn't get to ask you today that you wish that I would have. There's an aspect of this that we didn't talk about explicitly that I'll mention. Um, you know, a lot of times in business, there's a conversation with, is this an and or an or? And this is an important conversation for servant leadership. Um, the reason I titled my book, Dare to Serve, is I believe we have to do daring things and serve others well, and not or. Because I think in culture, we have pretty much mastered do daring things at all costs for self-interest. Okay, we got that. <laughs> no, what I'm suggesting is can we do daring things for the people in the enterprise and serve them well on the way to that daring destination? So it's an and. I think for in our humanness that you brought up, the humanity part, we want to strive to be people of competence and character. That's a Stephen Covey idea. I didn't make it up, but it's powerful to challenge ourselves. So I think for servant leaders, uh, the error I see is the camp of servant leaders that say it's only about caring for people and it's not about doing brave, daring work. I want to challenge you. It's both. Has anybody ever worked for a thriving, prospering company that was not performing well and you know the stock price is collapsing and the profitability is collapsing. Has anybody found that fun? Um, you cannot create thriving places for human beings without performance. And so pushing through this to the and and not allowing ourselves to say, well, we were really caring on the way to failure. You know, no, we're gonna be really caring on the way to daring destinations and creating the environment for high performance. That's an and. I love it. That is a great note to end on here. So I really appreciate your time, Cheryl. Um, I am hoping that this is something that can reach the masses because I think it's something that every organization and every individual should, should approach in life. So um, with that, just a final thank you. I've really appreciated your time and I hope you enjoy a beautiful day ahead of you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the thought leadership that you are exerting on this topic. It, it's uh, an important way to have an impact. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.